Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're glad you can join us. Uh, we are continuing to explore and examine and understand what President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris's ascent to the White House will mean for transatlantic relations. Last week, we had the opportunity to speak with a group of high school students from Indianapolis to hear their views uh, and their desires, what they want to see out of a future U.S. foreign policy. Today, we're shifting gears and we get the great privilege of sitting down with Steve Erlanger, who is an award-winning uh, New York Times journalist. Uh, just for those of you who aren't familiar with Steve's amazing history, he served um, as the Times Bureau Chief all across Europe, including in London, Paris, Prague, uh, and Berlin. He twice received the Pulitzer Prize during his decades of reporting on international affairs. So Steve, this is really a treat to get down to talk, to sit down and talk with you uh, about what you see coming down the pike. So thanks for joining us. Very happy to do it. And this is a great privilege. Thank you. I'm flattered. <laughs> I don't know where we want to begin, but maybe we'll just start with the obvious, Steve, which is, you know, how would you characterize Europe's reaction to the U.S. election? Um, I would say a lot of people feel what a, a friend of mine said, which was it's a return to civilization. Now, that exaggerates perhaps the benefits of civilization, um, but it does give you an idea of the shock the last four years have represented um, there's a lot of risk in, in that feeling, I think, because um, the temptation, I think, in Washington a bit too, and, and certainly in lots of Western Europe, is to think, oh, well, this is just a great aberration, and we're going to look back at those four years and think, what the hell was that all about? Well, it, it actually was about something, and it's about something that persists, and people understand that but they're still trying to absorb it. So relief, um, a sense that this is, you know, we're back to the America we sort of recognize. I mean, the one we're used to. Someone said Joe Biden is the last of the romantic transatlanticists. <laughs> That's good. Which is good, particularly after the death of um, John McCain. And I think that's true. I mean, Biden has been to the Munich Security Conference. He likes coming to Europe. He's got a lot of friends. He believes in personal diplomacy. Um, and he, as we all know, ran the Senate Foreign Relations, Senate Foreign Relations Committee for a really long time. So, I mean, I've met him in lots of places on, on, you know, on his trips. And um, I think there's a sense of familiarity um, but at the same time, you know, there is a concern that America's changed, history has changed, the river isn't always the same one, and um, that America, for reasons that of demography, of polarization, of worries about China, bipartisan worries about China, just isn't going to pay as much attention to Europe or care as much about Europe as in the past. One of the things I've also heard some people talk about is that perhaps um, with Biden and Harris in the White House, and you will have that kind of collective sigh of relief, some people have expressed worry that then Europe could kind of revert back to a more passive, 
or, or maybe a better term would be a less geopolitical stance. You know, the last four years, you've heard lot, a lot of talk, you know, if we can't rely on America, we're going to step up, we're going to really look to advance and secure European interests, European autonomy, but that with Biden, they might actually, Europe might take the foot off the gas of that line of thinking. And I wonder how much truth you think there is to that. Well, I think it's a real concern, but I mean, you have to ask yourself how big a, how heavy a foot was on the gas to begin with. I, I mean, you know, I'm very fond of, of, of the European Union. I think it's a great thing. I'm glad it's there. It doesn't, you know, it sort of ends a lot of conflict and warfare. But I mean, there is no European foreign policy. It just isn't one. We should stop looking for one. I mean, there's a German policy, a French policy. There are issues on which they will agree, but they tend to be common denominator issues. Um, and, you know, they have problems in their neighborhood. And I think we tend, actually, in America, we underestimate the divisions inside this bigger European Union, which, after all, you know, even with, with the British gone is less important to us, perhaps. Um, but is, you know, it's the Europe of 27 is not the Europe of 15. It's much more diverse. I mean, the addition of Central Europe um, helps in so many ways in terms of, 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 of deterrence and freedom and so on and so on. But, you know, they have very often different ideas of what it is to be European. They have different ideas of what they want to get out of Europe. And many people in Central Europe are mourning the defeat of Donald Trump because they trusted the American nuclear umbrella. They felt that despite Trump's words, uh, the U.S. had done a lot for to enhance, de enhance deterrence in Poland, in, in the Baltic states. And, um, you know, they're not fans of this idea of European strategic autonomy because they don't really believe in it. But the risk is there, particularly for Germany. Germany is the great question. Uh, it's always the great question. Um, as some people have said, you, you know, Biden may be an excuse for people to put their heads back in the sand. But, um, you know, we'll see. Um, but. I wouldn't overestimate how far strategic economy had gotten in the first place. You know, that's exactly right. And, and I've been hearing uh, from allies too here in Washington, a number of the embassies have been talking to me and some of them, uh, some of those, the so-called new allies, if you will, the vaults and others, they are nervous uh, about um, a Biden, um, a, a, a Biden administration and, worried about a reset with Russia, that that's going to come back, or worry about a um, just a softer posture. Uh, it's a bit irrational, but it's there. It, it is out there. And, um, and I think we have to, we have to, uh, you know, I knew Biden administration is going to have to deal with that to make sure that that is, you know, dispelled. Um, but, you know, I've also talked to allies about a, a Biden administration that would come in that would represent a new, more mature relationship with the European partners and allies, that it wouldn't be this our way or the highway approach, that it would be where we would be looking on them less as a dependence on us, that, they, that we got to get rid of that dependency 
that I think a lot of European allies have grown used to and that the U.S. kind of wanted so that we would get our way. Uh, and that this kind of relationship, so unequal, had to go away. This past four years could give us the opportunity to establish a more mature, even relationship, even if the, in terms of military, the military capability wasn't there on the European side. Uh, however, we, we had to have, uh, regardless, a more mature relationship. If that is true, what would that look like to you on the European side? What would a more European, a more mature European relationship look like vis-a-vis -vis the United States as a partner? Well, it's, um, it's a very good question because there is division, right? I mean, this is the great Franco-German division. Everybody talks about the Franco-German couple, you know, and they have a they do matter tremendously, but they are very different in terms of their definitions of their own national interest. I mean, French security is about France, first of all. It's secondarily about NATO. Uh, for Germany, as you both know, NATO is in the DNA of this post-war Germany. I mean, being embedded in alliances in NATO, in the European Union, it's part of the national definition, which it isn't in, in France in quite the same way. So, you know, a mature relationship, I mean, I, I, I think, again, a lot of it will depend on what happens to German politics and who succeeds Angela Merkel and, you know, where Germany goes. But so much of the dependency, honestly, I mean, you both know this, but I mean, Germany is the country we created. And we should stop whining about what about what it is, because we don't actually trust Germans with big ideas, right? We, I mean, we favor German unity. It's great, but it it is you know it's big. It's eighty something million people. Um, it's very rich. Um, it makes the French very nervous um, because of this disproportionate nature of the size and wealth that made the British very, very nervous. And the Germans are not going to, you know, march into the military. That's not what they are. So I think, you know, on the other side, part of what uh, um, the challenge is for America is to help the Germans and the rest of the Europeans define what it is to be a real security partner. And that can involve intelligence, it can involve humanitarian aid, it can involve dealing with migration, it can involve dealing with climate. It doesn't have to be all about, you, you know, artillery shells, particularly in a world of cyber crime and, 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 and espionage and all sorts of problems. So I think a mature relationship is one where you know, first of all, the Europeans come to the Biden administration with some ideas, like, let's do this together. And I know the German foreign ministry is already drafting similar ideas. I don't believe, in fact, they tell me they haven't actually checked them with the French or with Brussels. Um, but um, it, 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 it is one where, let's say on China, they build on what, uh, Pompeo started, which was a, a, a US-EU dialogue on Chinese technology, um, the idea of perhaps coming together on a kind of COCOM, a new COCOM to deal with Chinese 
technology, um, a way to discuss Ukraine in a way that makes sense for everyone, um, or Belarus. Um, I think Europe wants to play a bigger role and, and we shouldn't, you know, personally, you know, again, one can disagree, 2% is a good way of measuring um, spending, but it's not always a very good way of measuring contribution. You know, as, as, as you were saying, and I, I just, I agree with your uh, perceptions, absolutely. But, you know, where does the UK fit in all this? You know, if what is amazing to me, and I think it's a great loss uh, over the past number of years since Brexit in the think tank world, at least, when we would have discussions and, confer and conferences with, with Brexit, it's always about uh, Germany and France, Germany and France, uh, German leadership, French. The UK is no, not part of the discussion anymore. It's just out there. Only when you bring up Brexit does the UK pop up. But here, as we're talking about this partnership with Europe, et cetera, et cetera, again, it's about France and the UK and France and Germany. Where does the UK fit into all of this? Uh, where should it fit in? Well, I think, you know, that's a very important question because the assumption has always been that in security terms, um, Britain would play a big role, that global Britain was partly defined not just by trade, but by its security contribution to European collective security, certainly within NATO, British, Britain remains a very crucial partner. And in terms of intelligence for us, you know, in terms of Five Eyes, GCHQ, even human in intelligence, Britain's really important. I mean, it's more important than many people realize. Um, but um, there's a lot of bad feeling in the EU Right um, now, the only other—I mean, the only real military players inside the EU are the French, of course, um, the Poles. I mean, the Germans in their way. I mean, and and not much else. So um, I think even when Emmanuel Macron talks about strategic autonomy. Um, one should understand he always says within the context of the NATO alliance. I mean, Macron is not eager to destroy it. And the French and British, you know, have a very strong bilateral security relationship that I think will actually continue. Um, there's a lot to work out. We still don't know the shape of Brexit right now. We're coming toward the end of of a negotiating period that will tell us, you know, whether there's a thin deal to be done or no deal. My betting is on a thin deal because a, a no deal is stupid. But when did that stop anybody? Um, but uh, the, the security relationship has to wait. The Brits tried to put that on the table as part of their negotiating package, but that's not how the European Union works, right? I mean, the European Union is basically about trade and borders and so on. Um, and there's a lot of very bad feeling about um, this British government and how it's dealt so far with Northern Ireland, the so-called famous internal markets bill, which I hope will go away if there is a deal. Um, so I don't rule Britain out. Britain doesn't want to be ruled out. Um, and also I think, you know, you guys understand this, but 
Britain as a military power is fading. I mean, we shouldn't exaggerate how good they are. They have a tiny army now. It's 78,000 or something. Yeah. It's smaller than any time since Waterloo. Um, it's built these big carriers and it would take the whole Royal Navy to support one of them. Um, it's put all this money into modernizing its nuclear deterrent, build, building these four new submarines. And, you know, that's the whole budget. So as a fighting force, I mean, even the British military plans have for a long time now have, have never seen Britain fighting a war on its own without the Americans. So it has to be part of an alliance to function, but it's also an important part of that alliance. It's too long an answer, but I think, you know, it matters and everyone knows it matters. Wanted to ask about Russia, and it's Jim. It's interesting that you're hearing that from the Balts. This concern about a reset, because I think if you look at Biden's statements, um, you know he comes down quite hard on Russia and talks about wanting to raise the costs and hold Russia accountable. Um, and so, from my reading of kind of the folks around Biden and the direction it seems to go, it it looks like a much um, harder line against Russia. And I wonder, Steve, if you think that maybe has the potential to sync up with what I also think are some of the dynamics in Europe. So with the Navalny poisoning for the Germans, for example, that there could be some momentum to, to do more um, against the Russia challenge. So I just wonder, you know, when you look out, do you see a prospect for perhaps more cooperation, more coordination uh, on, the, on the Russia problem set? Well, I do. Um, I, it is true. I mean, Biden's words have been tougher. I mean, one has never really understood the Trump bromance with Vladimir Putin. I mean, never. But if there is a deep state, it seems to it seems to have protected a tough relationship anyway. Right. Um, I don't think we've been giving too many gifts to the Russians. I do think, you know, everyone says this. This is common wisdom. I, I hope it's true that the Biden people will fairly quickly move to extend New START, you know, which is the only last surviving strategic arms treaty. Uh, I hope they will go into negotiations in a serious way on some sort of new INF treaty, because frankly, the Europeans are really vulnerable to these new Russian missiles, which are dual use, it's not, you can't tell whether they have a nuclear weapon on top or not. Um, they are mobile um, the, and they're in Kaliningrad. So, I mean, these are, are serious security issues for, for the Europeans and, and they need a discussion with America about it. Now, issues of Ukraine, Belarus, I'm not sure what anyone's gonna actually do about that. But um, there is another interesting thing we haven't talked about, which we can, which is Turkey, which I think, you know, is part of the Russian relationship, right? And Turkey under Erdogan has become a tremendous problem for everyone, I believe, certainly for the Armenians, but I mean, also for the Greeks and the Cypriots. Um, there seems to be, and this is me, but, um, you know, with this vague basic vacuum of American leadership um, in, 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 in security terms, 
you have the rise of these kind of um, neo-imperialist regional powers who are pushing. And you see it with Erdogan in Turkey, you see it with Xi Jinping in China, you see it with Putin in, in Russia. These are not global powers necessarily, but they're expanding their influence. They're getting involved sometimes with not lots of troops, but with a military support filling vacuums in Libya, in Syria, in the Eastern Med, in now in the Caucasus. So how the Biden people deal with that, how, how they recreate a sense of joint deterrence, I think will be really important. Um, I mean, personally, I mean, my, feel, you know, I've been based in Russia, I speak some Russian, um, you know, we can make the more important than they really are, right? I mean, they're shrinking demographically, but militarily they've come back to matter. I mean, they have a much more modern military, much more modern nuclear forces, um, more modern planes. This isn't the disaster. Um, and the question is, um, can we talk to them in a serious way about their interests and our interests? That's something I thought Trump was going to do, but never quite did. Um, and, and the Russians, as you know, are always complaining, I think sometimes rightly, that their interests are never really taken into account. Now, I don't believe NATO expansion was, you know, the problem, but certainly in, in, in areas um, bordering Russia, like Belarus, which after all, you, you know, is crucial to Russia's sense of itself, or even in Ukraine where Rus was born, right? I mean, I mean, these are important relationships and, and I think triumphalism doesn't really help us to have a better relationship with Russia. Russia's gonna be an issue. It's a problem in the Balkans, it's a problem with the Serbs, it's a problem in the Czech Republic, in Slovakia, in Hungary, but it's not the rival that it used to be. Um, and I think it can be contained. And of course, as we know, you know, there are lots of strains inside Russia too. I mean, who knows how long Putin will last um, or, or, or what will succeed him. Um, you clearly see in the protests in the provinces and with the support outside for Navalny, a kind of, you know, there just isn't the same excitement about Vladimir Putin than there used to be. And his paranoia is quite real, I think. You know, this, this hearing what you were saying kind of takes me back to the UK question. Because in dealing with Russia um, and in dealing with things like the Balkans back in the 90s and other places, we, you know, the statecraft that the West kind of, uh, you know, was able to uh, fashion, uh, and particularly during the 90s, was we were able to, to convene geopolitically the, 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 you know, the quad countries or, you know, other, you know, when we were dealing with the Balkans, particularly, we came together with the Quint and the, you know, the various combinations of nations that would come together, Rambouillet, I mean, you remember the 90s, there was a lot of these, 
these subgroups of Western nations that would try to come together and, and deal with a, a problem or, or geo, geopolitically with a broader problem. So for me, as I'm thinking, as I was listening to you talk, I was thinking about dealing with Russia in all the ways you were describing the, the problem set. And um, with the UK not being in the EU anymore, uh, and therefore having to depend on NATO in terms of a, pl a place where the UK could talk to all the nations about geopolitical issues, even though other allies don't want to talk about those things at NATO, we're, we're kind of finding ourselves in a, in a, in, with a more frustrating way to deal with geopolitical problems. Uh, where the nations used to come together and we would deal with something, whether it was the, you know, the, with, but with the UK now out, and not just because of that, it seems that we need another way or another convening authority that would pull us together to deal with a, geo, a broader geopolitical issue. You know, um, I, and not that I'm calling for another NATO of some type of political, the geopolitical NATO, but, but with the UK now out, it's not like the EU can do that for, with, with Europe. You see what I'm saying? It's not like, um, uh, it, it's, it's become more, the, ge the geometry is a bit more complicated. And I wonder how we're gonna do that. I mean, would the UK come to Washington and then together we would approach the EU? Would the UK try to pull the geopolitical problem into NATO so they can talk to everyone about it? Even though the French and others say, we're not gonna talk about that here, we're gonna talk about that in the EU. Um, how does this work now, the, the dynamics, the political dynamics, when nations come together to handle a problem, uh, where do we do it? And maybe well, like, let's quick, Steve, just to add on to that, you know, there are the, the, these ideas about a D10 or some new groupings that would need to come together that would pull in the UK, but also really critically democratic uh, countries in the Indo-Pacific so that you have a broader alliance of countries. And how do you think that's being that kind of idea, this idea that, yes, transatlantic relations are important, but we've got to expand it beyond Europe. Um, how, how does that resonate in European capitals? Just well, those are, I mean, those are important questions. I mean, I was going to joke and say, I don't think a coalition of democracies is going to solve the security problem. Um, I just think it takes good diplomacy. I mean, the one thing the Biden people have are a lot of experienced diplomats. Um, the, the Brits want to play. It's a very important part of their self-image, of, of their amour propre. And frankly, I would urge the Biden people, and Tony Blinken knows France very well and speaks French, to treat um, Emmanuel Macron and his ambitions as something to work with and not to patronize. And I mean that very seriously because yeah. Macron does have a strategic mind. He does think about Russia. I mean, one of the reasons he's doing this kind of weird, it's been useless, but he's tried his own reset with Russia yeah. because he no longer believes the American guarantee is real and Russia's in the neighborhood, right? I mean, he's the one that talks about NATO is approaching brain death. He didn't say brain dead, he said it's approaching brain death. And of course, NATO is involved in this thinking through process, you know, that will report to the Secretary General by the end of the year, and I hope will then lead to a new strategic concept for NATO, which is part of what we're talking about here. Right. 
right? What should NATO be? The French always resisted the idea of a political NATO, but now they seem to want one. It's really interesting. They're sort of, you know, one of Macron's complaints is NATO, you can't talk about political issues in NATO. You can't talk about Turkey. You can't talk about this. You can't talk about that. Um, so I think there's a, 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 a lot of goodwill there. I mean, there's a, a, a joint feeling that as you both expressed, there's something missing, right? The question is what's the avenue? What's the best mechanism um, to have these strategic conversations? Maybe there is room for something new. Maybe there is a kind of security G10 or something. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be such a bad thing. I'm sure people would certainly come talking about it. Um, and, um, you know, we have to be careful in Asia too, because we tend to assume that um, the countries of Southeast Asia in particular somehow don't know they need to live with China, right? And we can't force them to make choices that they're not gonna make, right? Yeah. We have to be pretty realistic. So I'm curious, I mean, you know, I don't know, you're, you're in Washington, you know better what the gossip is about who's gonna actually do the policy making, it's not gonna be Biden and it's not gonna be Vice President Harris, but um, you have a, a lot of very sophisticated people um, and you know we'll see what comes out of it. But your point, which is correct, both of you, is there's something missing and it's not just the rubric of American leadership. There has to be some kind of mechanism for that to be exercised in a way that is um, fraternal and allied and, and, and not extortionate, the way it's felt for the last four years. A slightly different question, but building from this, I mean, we, you know, our compete, we talked about Russia and our competition with Russia and with China. So there's obviously a security component, which we've been talking about, but we are also competing over ideas. Um, and we all know that under President Trump, you know, that some, of the, some of those ideas, American democracy has been tarnished in the eyes of many. Then we just had this election um, where, you know, he's still, President Trump hasn't yet conceded the election. Um, I wonder, Steve, do you, do you worry that kind of American democracy has been tainted in, in Europe. I mean, do, I mean, I think I had seen even President Lukashenko had made some comments about, well, if those are, you know, if those are, if that's what's happening in America, well, you know, maybe our elections here aren't so bad either. Uh, I just wonder, do you think it's something, do you, do you get a sense that Europeans now view American democracy as something different? Is it irreparable or do you, do they see it more as a blip and that we, we still, will have some moral authority or the ability to lead and support democracy internationally? Or, or has that really been damaged? Well, I think it's been damaged, but it's been damaged over many years. It's not just now, it's not just with Trump. Obama damaged it too, to be honest. I mean, um, a lot of people still very angry about Syria and the red lines, they're a little angry about Libya. I mean, I mean, they're, and don't forget, it was Joe Biden who was against going into Libya, who was against the surge in Afghanistan, who didn't think the raid on Osama bin Laden was necessarily a risk worth taking. I think the Iraq war has had a bigger impact on Joe Biden 
than it's had on a lot of other people. Um, so, but the problem is, even if you go back and look at TTIP, what happened at TTIP, I mean, the problem wasn't just Congress, the problem was German opposition. Now, why were the Germans opposed to this trade deal? Popular Germans, it's because they no longer trust the regulatory decency of the United States. They don't believe we live in a safe society. We are not the country they wanted us to be. We have disappointed them. Now, this is, a, I say this to Germans, I say, you know, this is partly your fault, right? You've, you've, you've had weirdly um, optimistic ideas. I mean, and, and the Germans tend to love Democrats and dislike Republicans, right? This is, it goes up and down and up and down. But there is, you know, with um, the structural changes in America, the pulling out of American troops from Europe by Obama, the war in Iraq, I think, did more to damage our reputation in Europe than anything Trump's done, to be honest. I think there are a lot of Europeans who will see Trump as the Chinese do, as, as really a symptom of what America is becoming, which is very polarized, very divided, a little bit unsure of what it wants in the world, to be honest. Um, now that's made worse by this childish Trump refusal to acknowledge his defeat. I mean, that does damage the idea of American democracy as smoothly functioning, right? Um, I argue to people, you know, I think I'm right, that actually the system's worked incredibly well. I mean, there's been almost no violence. I mean, you have states who are in control of their own electoral processes, that um, they have resisted pressure from the White House, um, and that, you know, give it time, even Trump will come to realize that he can't stay, right? But the whole idea of saying it was rigged from the beginning. I mean, this was the president who said the election he won was rigged, right, in 2016. But it, it doesn't help. You're quite right, it doesn't help. And, and it feels authoritarian. I mean, there's a demagogic quality to, to Trump. Um, and also, you know, his disregard for facts quite simply, I mean, it's just, it's not amusing anymore to Europeans and to allies, let alone this feeling that, you know, he feels that everybody's a free rider and that Europe is designed to hurt America and that allies aren't really allies, but rivals and foes and trade competitors. I mean, so this will go away, but the sense of the city on the hill the city in the hell has lost some of its shine, but that's been happening for some time now. Just one quick follow-up on that. I mean, I think there will be some in the Biden administration who will want to um, take on or address democratic backsliding in Europe, particularly among NATO member states, Hungary, Poland, some of those. And so given what's happening in the United States, I mean, how, I mean, if, if you get to, if you were sitting in Washington and advising, uh, a Trump, uh, a Trump, a Biden administration on how they should 
approach that kind of issue, what kind of humility they might need to have, you know, what would your advice be? Because obviously it will rub many, many and be, you know, largely inappropriate just to kind of, you know, hey guys, we're back and now we want to talk about your problems with democratic backsliding. So how, how do you think they, how do you, do, how do you do that graciously? Um, I've myself personally have never been a big fan of telling people how to run their lives abroad, by the way. I think it's gotten us into a lot of trouble. Um, we see it in Afghanistan, we see it lots of places. It's one thing to defeat Al-Qaeda, it's another thing to try to remake countries. We didn't do a very good job in Iraq. We've not done a good job in Libya. I mean, we're not very good at it. So I think we need some humility. These are democracies. Now they may be flawed democracies. In Poland, there's a lot to play for. I, I would concentrate on Poland, which is very divided. Turkey also, very divided. I mean, it's not like it's, um, you know, some solid authoritarian dictatorship. That's not true. So I think we need to do the kinds of things we actually are pretty good at, which is working with civil society, helping the independent press, um, cracking down on, on, on bots and fake news, because there's a lot of that going into these countries from Russia, from Turkey, from other places. Um, and we shouldn't pretend Hungary is bigger than it really is. Um, but we should encourage the European Union, which is starting to do this, to apply some conditionality of its own to rule of law um, and, and to European values. But, you know, I honestly, when we're, we, we need to kind of keep faith with Democrats but I don't think we're really very good, you know, if we're gonna talk to Xi Jinping, I mean, we can obviously make the points about human rights and Hong Kong and the Uyghurs and Xinjiang, and we should do that. We should be very public about it. But, you know, it worries me more is that we deter China from invading Taiwan. All right, we're getting near the end of the time, but I know, um, so Jim often has a very um, reflective question he likes to ask some of our guests at the end. So I know he, he's been itching to do this one. So Jim, over to you. Well, I have- Scares me. Well, I, I have really looked forward to asking you this question. Uh, and uh, it's an easy one. It's a philosophical one, and I'm gonna, I'm buying you some time a little bit to think about it, but, but you know, your career is the kind of career all of us have wanted to, we've all wanted to be Steve Erlanger. I mean, this is, we've all wanted to see what you have seen and write the way you write, know the people you know, the ability to sit there in Europe and watch this unfold is just, it's a dream position to be in. And so you've been doing it for a while. And as, and so my question for you is, you know, as you have, uh, as you have looked on the European scene, the transatlantic scene, the United States from abroad, and you think philosophically about what you've seen and observed, what, what do you take away at this point in your career as you think back and you've seen so much, uh, you've heard so much, um, there certainly must have been assumptions that you had made early on that have proven not to be true as you've experienced it, or insights to your own country that you've seen from abroad. 
or insights in terms of geopolitics? I mean, this is a lot. You could pick, take your pick. But, um, but what do you reflect on late at night over a, over a uh, nice wine uh, and you think back? What, what comes to mind as you think about uh, the stage and the actors that have walked across it? It's a fascinating question. I mean, I do think about these things. I mean, I spent in the summer of 1981, which was the Solidarność summer, you know, and I met Lech Wałęsa. You could buy an interview with him for a carton of Dunhill cigarettes. That's what it cost. <laughs> right? um, and yet I traveled for three and a half months for the Boston Globe through every country of Eastern Europe that summer, trying to gauge the impact of, of solidarity in 81. Um, and I have to say it was a revelation to me. It, it really taught me something quite important I've never forgotten about the value of freedom, um, about the value of being able to speak your mind and write what you want. Um, even the smartest people in that world had to be careful. They had to have a Lenin quotation on the top of everything. Senior people, when they traveled to the West, their families had to stay behind to make sure they didn't defect. Um, this was, you know, a, this was a real important physical revelation for me. Um, um, who had kind of been a kind of kind of smart but pretty lefty kind of kid, right? Because I grew up with the Vietnam War. I went to Woodstock, right? Um, but this was important to me. And the other thing that was very important to me was covering war. Now, I know that sounds perhaps odd, but you learn things under fire that you cannot learn any other way. And you learn something about fragile human life. It's very fragile, about accident, about happenstance, about the cynicism of politicians and of governments. Um, I don't think you can be a journalist without a degree of anger or mm. unhappiness with the way the world is. I mean, the point is, as Mark said, not just to understand the world, but to change it. Now we have to be careful. I mean, we are only what we are, but I think these things really matter. And so I cherish this Western idea, this American idea of, of uh, informed democracy and informed populace, informed voters through a press that is free to make mistakes and free to screw things up, but also free to um, hold the powerful to account. And, and the rest of the world doesn't always have that. Yeah. It really doesn't. Um, and um, there's a lot of life that gets wasted. A lot of very intelligent, talented people um, all over the world. I mean, through poverty, through racism, through sexism, through all, all all, all kinds of horrors. I mean, um, a, a lot of the world lives truly in a horrible way. And it is just kind of something to cherish. Um, and I don't think Americans 
or West Europeans always understand what the stakes are and how lucky they are. Wow, beautiful. Well, that's a great way to end. Oh my goodness. Sure is. Thank you, Steve. I mean, just this was really um, a, a wonderful privilege to be able to sit down and talk with you. And um, we sure look forward to reading what you've got uh, over the, the coming weeks and months. Um, it is a, a tumultuous time and to have folks like you who are there to make us uh, help us make sense of everything is just so invaluable. And we just so appreciate your voice and all of the work that you do. So it's been a real treat to speak with you. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Jim. It was a real, a real privilege. And I'm, I'm glad you're um, doing it and keep the faith, whatever that is. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're very important to us back here in Washington uh, and uh, throughout the West reading your things. So just know that when you write something, they, it just doesn't go off into a black hole. It goes to a, a lot of people who are very much informed by what you say. Just tell my editors that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you.